Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. When identifying new best practice interventions, many mental health organisations are faced with the challenge of implementing them within existing systems and service delivery protocols. This is, this is further complicated by interdependencies with other complex service systems. This week's podcast guest, Susie Lewis, is responsible for leading the design, development and implementation of new services and programs as the General Manager for Strategy, Innovation and Research at ACORAS. She holds a Master of Clinical Psychology and a Master of Perinatal and Infant Mental Health. Tune in as Susie joins us this week uh, to explain the challenges many organisations face in putting theory into practice and the elements to success practice integration. Susie Lewis, thanks very much for joining us uh, and sharing your journey and everything you've been up to with our listeners. Appreciate you you coming on board. No, great to be here. Thank you. So, I mean, a chorus and all the wonderful things that you guys are up to, I'm keen to get into that at some point. But before we do, do you want to tell us a little bit, a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, sure. So I am a psychologist by trade. So I grew up on the Gold Coast. My family's from Sydney and New Zealand and we kind of all relocated. I loved growing up on the coast. I'm very lucky. Grew up kind of near the beach and, and got yeah. to have a really, really... Um, fortunate childhood and I as I kind of grew up I I went to school and I had friends who were going through some pretty bad times and I had one particular friend in school who was self-harming and had some a number of suicide attempts and it um, got me thinking about how you can help people because I didn't know what to do at that point I had no idea I didn't know how to respond I didn't know how to be the right kind of friend that that person needed so when I, I kind of Went, went off to uni as, as, as I was kind of encouraged to do and I started studying ancient history and journalism because I thought that was what I wanted to do and I thought, look, while I'm here, why don't I do some psych courses because I would love to know what to do if, you know, if, I, if I'm ever in a situation again where I'm with someone who's not doing okay. And I did kind of my psych 101 and I thought, well, that's it. I'm not doing journalism and ancient history anymore. This is where I want to be. Like this is just fascinating, learning how the human mind works and how we are shaped by the people around us and the institutions around us and the culture around us and how that 
makes us who we are. I just didn't stop. So I went through and I did my undergrad in psych and honours and I did a clinical master's in psychology and then a master's in perinatal and infant mental health. Because as I kind of went through my studies, I, I started, I worked in a inpatient unit, an adult inpatient unit, and it was fascinating. But I thought, nah, I, I need to get in earlier than this. So I moved to a child and adolescent inpatient unit. And again, the work was amazing and we, we could do so much, but I thought to myself, we need to get in earlier than this. And so I started working in community child and youth mental health. And then I moved into infant mental health because I thought, no, we've got to get in, we've got to start super early. And then I realised we need to work with people before their parents. And I ended up clinical lead and then manager of a headspace centre. And that was how I found myself at a chorus. They were the lead agency of that headspace centre and I've been with them for the past 10 years delivering different services. That's incredible. It's incredible how you just work that back. You're like, well, we've got to go younger, younger. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden we're back at the other end. Yeah. Oh, hang on. We've got to deal with the people (laughs) that are going to be expecting kids. That's right. Wow, that's that's amazing. And so so a big focus of your work for a while was parents to be. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Not not working with them as parents to be, but just as people who needed good emotion regulation and to have healthy and respectful relationships and to be able to hold the mind of someone else in their mind because that's such a key thing for parents. And if we've got an adolescent in front of us who can't understand what other people are thinking and therefore are getting into all all kinds of problems, we know that they're they're not going to really have the kind of success we'd be hoping for as a parent. If we can help them to have that mind-mindedness to develop healthy relationships where they can practice that and feel held and safe while they develop those skills when their time comes and if they choose to be parents they will be better parents as a result Mm. wow that's incredible isn't it and so you're obviously very passionate about what you're doing (laughs) does does that show yes it does but tell us how was the time with headspace was it was it good oh i loved headspace i think i was so fortunate to be in in one of the two kind of initial brisbane centres and to grow it and to work with our systems like to to work with child and youth mental health and child protection and and communities and all of our key kind of service partners to develop it up to what it needed to be for our Brisbane community because I think people see the branding of Headspace and they kind of assume it might be the same everywhere you go like a like a McDonald's franchise Mm. and it is kind of a franchise model because you've got different lead agencies everywhere using the same the same green but we tailor it to what the actual community needs and we work with our communities and and add in Anala our our Anala elders and the Indigenous community was so key to that to shaping the kind of service we ended up delivering Mm. and that was just such an amazing time I loved it. Wow. And that's where you came across a chorus. How did that come about? Well, a chorus was delivering Headspace Anala. And so I just thought, yep, this is where I want to be. And I, I applied for the job and I didn't know it at the time, but they had just kind of become a chorus. Before that, they were a, a division of general practice, which ceased to exist a couple of months before, before I came along and applied. And they were at the start of their journey to becoming an early intervention mental health service, which was just, again, such an amazing place to be as they grew into that and developed into an an organisation that was really focused on the social determinants of good mental health. Mm. So tell our listeners, what is Acorus and why do they exist? So Acorus is a not-for-profit charitable organisation that also is not for loss. We try very hard to think 
like a business because when we are commercially successful and end up with retained earnings, we reinvest that into community services and mental health programs that wouldn't otherwise be able to exist because they're not funding priorities for in for other funders in other areas. We have we work across all the social determinants of health that we can with an early intervention focus, with a mental health focus. So we deliver things like settlement services and child protection services and employment and pre-employment services, but they all have a mental health foundation underlying their models and and the frameworks we're working from. We want to help people gather the skills and abilities and resources they need to live their, their lives well because we know that prevents mental illness. Yep. And is that to the consumers directly or that's through existing services? That's through to consumers directly. So we deliver client-facing services, but we also work really hard at the systemic level to work with our partners to build a stronger health system. And on the health system side of things, tell me about, I mean, as a person seeking services or seeking help from the sector, it can be quite overwhelming. Mm. It can be... There's a lot of different organisations doing things in different areas and it's hard to really know where to start. How, how have you seen that and from a chorus's point of view, how do you help mm. solve that problem? Yeah, love that question because it's something I, I ask myself a lot. Like is what we're doing helping people to better navigate the system? Are we making it easier? Are we truly embracing our kind of no wrong door approach? And, and that is what we try and do. So we have all of our programs, when we kind of build up a service model to put to a funder or in response to a tender, we include community capacity building in that. So part of that is mental health literacy, going out to to key groups like parents and non-health and non-mental health services, delivering kind of psychoeducation and information on how to access services when their clients might need them, things like that. We also put funding into um, roles where we can serve a connector function. And we've actually worked really closely with the Brisbane South PHN on this as well. Connector functions is where if someone comes to us and asks for help and we're not the right service, we don't stop working with them until they're at the right service. So it's not a matter of, well, here's a phone number and here's some places that might help. We will make those calls. We will walk with people until we know they're engaged in the right place for them. That's really interesting. So that's consumers that call you directly and if you're not the right service for them you will say let us help you and hold them through that process that's right well tell me what portion of your work is done in the different areas how much is it focused around that literacy mental health awareness um, education versus that connector side of things trying to bring people together to try and create better outcomes to answer that i'd probably say we've got we've got four streams of service delivery so we have like a psychology clinic that's like a traditional clinic model where we use mental health care plans referred by GPs. We have our child, youth and family stream where we deliver like like Headspace and Arla would fall under that, child and youth, child and family mental health service. We've got our ABC program under that as well, attachment and biobehavioural catch-up. We also have our employment stream. So we have a Parents Next contract across four employment regions. We do a lot of work there. And our fourth stream is our kind of community education stream. We get funding specific for community education and we also, as I said, build it into all of our funding contracts so we can take time and resources in each contract to make sure we're strengthening the communities we're delivering services in. And and is this national? We're based across southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales. Okay. 
And so is there is the dream, is the future to be national and try across more states and territories? I would love to see a chorus grow. I think we are well positioned to do that. At the present time, our our kind of strategic plan is seeing us grow in geography kind of across Queensland and northern New South Wales. Yes. Um beyond 2025. Okay. Yeah. Okay, when you say grow beyond Queensland, uh, growing to Queensland is that northwest as well? Yeah, that's okay. right. We'd love to be able to support more people out in the the regions and rural Queensland. Yeah. I mean, they've got their own challenges out there, don't they? Access to services mm. and, and the fly-in, fly-out you know, m- model with people. They see different people yep. all the time and having to explain their, their story or their, their challenge over and over again to different people. There's um, the stigma around you know, mm. having their car out in the front of the yeah. psychology offices in the town where everyone knows their car. Yeah. There's all those different things to think yeah. about in those regional and remote areas. Where do you see as far as – so? In as far as in Brisbane and southeast Queensland at the moment, you guys are well established. It's been around for how long? Uh, twenty five years. Twenty five years, and over the ten years that you've been involved with the, with the organisation, what uh, has your role evolved, and how have you seen mm. the company or the organisation evolve? Well, my my role has changed quite a bit. I've had a number of roles within the organisation. I started as clinical lead out at Headspace, and then became centre manager. I then while I was kind of having a, a couple of rounds of maternity leave. I did a lot of work in terms of clinical governance and grant writing and tender processes. I then took on a role as my my current role. I've, I've been in it in one version or another for a few years now, either kind of chief strategy officer or after review of our executive team, the general manager for strategy, innovation and research. And tell us about that role and what that involves. Mm-hmm. Most, it means that I spend a lot of time thinking longer term and bigger picture than we often have an opportunity to do when we're delivering services. I spend a lot of time thinking about what a chorus does well, what we do better than most people, where our opportunities are to really enact change at an organisation level and a systemic level to improve people's lives and how we can how we can create a future where more people are living with better mental health so I you know I I develop up plans to, to get us there contingencies if things change and then the innovation side is well what new kind of programs and interventions do we need to think about to 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 bring this future to be and how have you seen much of a shift in that in the time that you've been at it? I mean, the has COVID's obviously had mm. an impact on this and the rollout of services and how that delivery's played out. But has that accelerated things further along for you than what you would, would have otherwise done? And tell us about that. Yeah, I th- COVID has been such a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's shown us how rapidly we can pivot and adapt to challenging new circumstances. And I think that has brought a lot of um, optimism to the sector. On the other hand, it's shown us the limits of what technology can do in human-focused and relationship-based work. We've got a lot of clients and communities who really don't want to receive services over Zoom or Teams. They want people, you know, in their homes, in their communities, doing the work. And we've got some really fatigued communities and some people and particularly our vulnerable families 
and individuals who have really struggled through COVID and we've got a lot of work to do there, I think. Yeah. No, that's – I mean, it's – it's. I mean, the way it came about, it was so abrupt and mm. so sudden that yeah. it just forced a lot of people to adapt and, and you had to, but some people were a lot well-placed – yeah. to do that than others. That's exactly right. I think if you've got if you've got the means to have a really good access to technology and, and high quality internet and things like that, you are far more able to access services in a covid type environment than if you're in an area with no nbn or, or poor nbn, you can't afford, you know, internet or or phone or anything like that and and that's, you know, that's an equity issue. So what, what are we going to do about that as service providers if we're saying, well, from, from this point forward, a proportion of service delivery is happening th- via technology, how do we enable people to benefit from that, particularly where digital literacy is an issue or language is an issue and if you're over technology, you can't rely on body language and contextual cues the same way you might if you're in person. What's been some of the challenges in your role, Susie, as it relates to, you know, trying to adapt, trying to strategize and innovate this space? Yeah. Um, I think when we think about how um, quickly we were able to pivot, one of the things I thought about is, okay, so we've got, you know, we rapidly make sure we've got the technology and the equipment to deliver services in place. It's We also need to acknowledge that the skills to deliver mental health intervention successfully over, over a screen or through a phone is different than face-to-face. Mm. So I think a bigger challenge is making sure our people are trained and equipped to be as effective as they can be over technology, given they train to deliver services face-to-face. I see that as a key challenge. I also see a key challenge that I think a lot of funders see digital, you know, digital mental health or telehealth as an efficiency sometimes. And it will work for some people, but it won't work for everyone. And we can't, we don't want to end up in a situation where our most vulnerable people are expected to access support through a digital option if that doesn't work for them. So that you, the, the power needs to be with them about which mode. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked so much about co-design at this conference, which has been fantastic, and that I think that is the lesson. We need to talk to people about what will actually help them and not, not make assumptions or make decisions based on economies. That's really interesting. I mean, you guys are big believers that, of course, establishing partnerships and, and working together to achieve better outcomes mm. for, for people. Tell us about how this is shaping the services and the focus and the strategy that you are taking on moving forward. Yeah, so we, like you're right, um, and I'm glad to hear you say that actually because we do talk a lot about partnerships and working together to make things better. So it's really nice to hear someone else say that back. Thank you. An example of what we're doing, we hope to shift the service system and the way people think about mental health in a way that means more people get what they need, particularly the most vulnerable. An example of that is what we're doing with attachment and biobehavioural catch-up, our ABC Infant Mental Health Intervention. This is an intervention that was developed specifically for use with infants and young children in the child protection system. They are some of our most vulnerable and disadvantaged members of our community. And as it stands, there is no standard expectation that they should access mental health supports or have that there is mental health supports available for them. Usually to end up in proximity or in the child protection system, there's been abuse or neglect or separation from a primary attachment figure or, or something else, some other trauma of that scale. A, a new place to live and, and a competent caregiver 
is actually not sufficient to repair damage that might have been done to that point. But we know with early intervention we can improve the outcomes of this population and there is effective early intervention out there. So we look at the system and we go, well, we know there's a problem, we know there's potential solutions, but at this point nothing's being done. So how about we make it our job to try and move the service system a little bit closer to being ready and able to provide those services. So we've developed the ABC project, which on the one hand is a really great way to get services to people who need them, and on the other hand is a great way to bring our key stakeholders with us. So we are so fortunate that Queensland Mental Health Commission funded the independent evaluation of that project. We're also working with the Queensland Family and Child Commission, the Department of Children, Youth Justice and Multicultural Affairs, Queensland Health in the form of the, perinatal and infant, the Queensland Centre for Perinatal and Infant Mental Health, Queensland Transcultural Mental Health Centre and the Australian Association for Infant Mental Health working together to try and use our kind of shared brain power and shared influence to make it, to get us a little bit closer to the point where infant mental health is an accepted and standard intervention for those populations. Mm. Wow. That sounds incredible. So when's that rolling out? We've been doing that since – we've been delivering services since the start of 2021 in that. So our pilot program has kind of run throughout 2021 and the first quarter of this year. The data on that is being analysed as we speak and we are looking forward to to pulling together that because the evaluation, as I say, was not just about does this intervention work, it's is the service system able to bring this, bring this to the community because we're self-funding this, so we invested our own retained earnings in it. For sustainability, we need um, everyone to, to come along on the journey. It's not something we should do alone. Mm. What an opportunity there with that. And so we're, we're going to see some results of that being analysed and reported mm. on in the coming months. Yes. Are, we, are we thinking obviously already that it looks highly effective? I sh- yeah, look, eyeballing the data, it, yeah. it looks good. It looks like this is an effective intervention. We know it's been demonstrated. It's got 25 years of evidence overseas in the States and in Europe. It's new here because it it's expensive and time-consuming to train your people and, and implement it. But the outcomes it achieves in 10 sessions are world-beating. Like we, we really need to have a good look at ABC or ABC-like programs for our community. That's amazing. That sounds really exciting. The funding side of things, how mm. is the chorus funded? Is it private investment, public? Public funds. We've got state, federal and local funding okay. for our mental health and employment services. Our, we've got our psychology clinics that are funded through mental health care plans as well as gap payments from patients and clients. We also, as I said, we, we try to think commercially. So we, we have activities in the business where we seek to have a kind of, I don't know how useful acronyms are, but we, we seek an EBIT of 10% in our activities. So okay. that money, so that's something that can kind of go back into Come back in services. And yeah. reinvest it into other projects. That's right. Yeah. We the only way to help more people and I'm like I'm a firm believer when I look at the community service system I think more and more charitable enterprises are going to have to start making their own money. I really do. Mm. There's insufficient funding for the need out there and also we see cert- organizations of a certain size and scale starting to fail and to and to hit insolvency. We we as a sector need to think a bit differently about our sustainability. And there's so ma- it's so competitive. Yeah. The competition for resources is in this sector is 
It's crazy. And, and the intention from everybody is really, really good. But mm. you're right, at the end of the day, there's only so much money to go around. Yeah, and, and we are a sector that thrives on relationships and we should be collaborating with each other. But when the competition is so fierce, you can accidentally fall into competing. Mm. And that does not serve our clients or our communities. So I, I really do think we there needs to be a bit of a shift. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Tell us about the the exciting future ahead and what's all the cool things that are going to be coming up with the chorus and, um, and what you're doing. I would say, okay, so something I'm really excited about is we've got our – the in January last year, we piloted for six months the National Psychosocial Support Measure funded program, that a program for people with a disability that's quite – severe and significant, a mental a mental health, a psychosocial disability, I'm sorry, who are not quite eligible for NDIS funding. So we worked with Brisbane South PHN to develop a developmental lens to put on that to work with children 8 to 17. That went really well and it seemed to meet a really big need in the um, community. This is a psychosocial program non-clinical, delivered to children who may be ideally positioned to benefit from something like talk therapy. Mm-hmm. But we go in, we work individually, developing skills and, and independence in children, working with their families and caregivers to kind of develop some scaffolding around them to give them the best chance of, of success and working, again, with communities and developing up community capacity to support these families. That went really well. We were fortunate enough to receive some additional funding that will take us through to 2023. I'm really excited to talk to more people about that. I think taking a psychosocial, almost disability but not quite kind of service model and applying it to children, taking a a real developmental trauma-informed lens, we are finding that there are young people out there with really significant mental illness who had not been in contact with the mental health system because it just wasn't a match for them. And this program is reaching them. I'm excited about that. I'm, and I'm really keen to talk to more people about where else in, in the state and in the country this m- might be useful. Wow, that sounds really cool. I think so. Well, that's awesome. And tell me, is there, what, is there anything else on the radar long term st- strategically? You're looking to grow the geographic location of a chorus and their services. Were you delivering them? Um, yes, but not that I can talk about. I'm so sorry. That's okay. It's top secret. I get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You got to hold some cards close to your chest. Okay. So tell me, as you as you look moving forward, especially as it relates to adolescents, what are we seeing as some of the big challenges coming out with this group of people, and what do you think we should focus on in the future to address this challenge? Look for adolescents. I would say that we, for people who grew up. 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you can't underestimate how different it is to be an adolescent now. I, I know teenagers who are struggling with all the things that teenagers have struggled with forever and on top of that they have a live stream into a war zone because teenagers over there uploading things that are really quite, quite catastrophic for, for good mental health. It's terrible that they're happening and it's also terrible that teenagers in other parts of the world are being exposed to that and traumatised by that. We have the inability, teenagers a lot of the time have an inability to switch off from their devices. We have kids sleeping with their phones in their hands and they are not putting them down. They are having conversations and living their lives either either through their phone or with it as a constant companion and to the point where we're seeing 
like quite significant anxiety when they're without it and an inability to function without it. That inability to turn off means that any kind of relational problems or relationship problems they've got going on with peers, they can't get away from them. It used to be where if you had a really nasty bullying problem, if worst came to worst, you could kind of move and you could change schools and and get away from that. Those days are gone. For some kids, there's no escape from really problematic, aggressive relationships. We're also seeing a lot more self-harm and suicidality and kids have access to so much more information about how to hurt themselves because of the internet and so much more exposure to really extreme pornography. Like I really do worry that we've got several generations of adolescents coming through who are seeing things that their brains are just not prepared for that would be seriously traumatic for adults and they're getting them while they're still forming the person they're going to be. And, and it does concern me and we need to, we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions about that. What do you think we can do then? I mean, it's like you bring up a lot of really good points there with some of the key challenges facing our adolescents today. What's, if we look solution focused, what can we do to help reduce the impact that this is having Mm. on this crucial group of people well i say the first thing we can do is take the things that they take seriously we need to take them seriously too and something i didn't mention just now but should have is climate change Mm. our young people are acutely aware that they're living on a warming planet and that the people with power to make changes find it inconvenient too and they see that as a complete dereliction of duty and giving away making their future hard to make right now easier for people. So I think we need to take what young people take seriously. We need to take that seriously too. And so do you, are we thinking more awareness, more education around this for for the whole community needs to be done to help reduce the, the impact of these things with phones and technology and cyberbullying and those sorts of things? I honestly wish I had a simple answer for this, but I just don't. Um, I think all community sectors and services need to work together. I know that mental health se- men- the mental health sector alone cannot address this. We need to work in combination with our partners in education and in housing and in child protection and in infrastructure and development. We, we need to work as a, like a proper ecosystem. Everyone who does things that impact on the lives of children and adolescents need to actually think together about how, what we're doing and how we... Um, work collaboratively to maximise mental health outcomes. And we do need to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of adolescents and look at the world from their perspective, see what their key stresses are, and then ask ourselves, well, what can we do to make that a little bit easier? Mm. And then we need our mental health services, building resilience, teaching how to manage anxious thoughts, teaching how to, you know, maintain your health and your mental health to the best of your ability. How do you think we get large-scale take-up on that awareness and education around this? I mean, do you think Mm. it should become part of the curriculum? Do you think it should be just embedded, I guess, the logical places, school grounds, community organisations, homes, obviously, is a big one? Yeah, I see two immediate opportunities. One is that the – I mean, and this is specific to Queensland, I apologise, but there is a mental health select committee happening right now that the Queensland government is running. I think government controls so many – levers that can influence mental health I think it's an opportunity to say well if you do something that impacts on children if the government department does something that impacts on children they now need to consider the mental health of children as part of their decision making rubric or or matrix 
I also think we've got some really fantastic knowledge and partners in BU, the the whole of school mental health approach um, led by Headspace and Beyond Blue. They have fantastic resources. What they do works. I mean, I remember reading the the Kids Matter evaluation that came out in 2011 and just being absolutely blown away by how much of an impact a whole of school approach to mental health had on students. Students in Kids Matter school were six months ahead of kids in other schools in terms of their learning. Their mental health outcomes were improved and best of all, the most vulnerable kids saw the most improvement in their mental health. That you know, that's why we have things like BU funded mm. because it works and it works so strongly. We need to support schools to pick it up. Our schools are so busy. If you give the give BU resources to schools and say you should implement this, well, they would love to, but who's going to do it? They're all already flat out. Like, can we support schools to do that? We know it works. Can we help? Those yeah. would be my two immediate opportunities. Some great thoughts there and that makes sense, doesn't it? I think so. The rollout obviously is, seems to be a bit more complex as, and mm. how we get that on the ground, like anything, unfortunately, it takes time mm. and resources yep. to, to implement. Tell me, as it relates to your role, what's it, do you find uh, challenges at all for you personally? Like is there funding? Are you hamstrung by, you know, location or different things? Like what's some of the, the barriers that's preventing you you guys from trying to reach the mm. audience you need to reach? Well, as, as you may have picked up, I like to think big. Mm. And, and, and I think a chorus does have an outsized influence relative to our size in, in these um, kind of discussions, which is fantastic. But I would love for us to have more influence over decisions. I would love for us to have more early intervention funding that is ecological. So we work with the person, we work with the family and we work with the community. That would be amazing. Um, I would also love to solve the mental health workforce crisis because it's really, really hard at the moment, even when you secure funding, to find people to deliver the services. That would be I would if I had my magic wand, I'd, I'd probably be doing something there. Yeah, you make a good point there. The workforce and the challenges that are going to lay ahead with trying to keep up yep. with demand will be a challenge yeah. for the sector. Okay, Susie, as we head to the home straight. Tell us, how can people get hold of you and find out more about what a chorus? You would start with a website. So if you go to achorus.org.au, that's a great place to kind of do a, a scan of what we're doing at the moment and, and get in contact. I would also love to hear from anyone who's heard something in this conversation and would like to discuss it further. I'm always up for a chat about mental health and improving systems. So get in contact with me. My email address is slewis at achorus.org.au. Susie, it's been so insightful listening to the, the things that you've been up to uh, and what got you into the, this, into the profession in the first place. But some of the work that you guys are up to, I know we sort of didn't get a chance to talk about everything, but I mean, it's, it's really impressive. There's obviously a need for such a service like this and you're getting really good outcomes for, for people, which is the whole point of doing this in the first place. So congratulations on that and, and you can clearly tell that you're very passionate about this. So I think that's wonderful and we wish you all the best in the future. Is there anything you want to say in closing? No, just thank you. It's I think conversations like this move discussions forward and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Susie. Is
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.